Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Well, good morning to you. Happy New Year. And to those of you who are here in the sanctuary, those in the commons, those joining us via the live stream, welcome to First Baptist Church. And please turn with me in your Bibles this morning back to the book of Mark. We're in chapter 11, verses 1 through 11 today. And this is a sermon entitled, The Beginning of the End. The Beginning of the End. And the reason we are calling it that is because in our journey with Jesus, we have made it to Passion Week, the final week of His life here on earth. So surely, this must be close to the end of Mark's gospel, right? Not exactly. Because the truth of the matter is that Mark takes six chapters or a third of his gospel to chronicle this final week. So um, we still have some territory to cover, but today really is a noteworthy milestone because it is the beginning of the end. We have made it to the final week of Jesus' life here on earth. So would you please stand with me as I read the text? Now, some of you be wondering, hey, why do we do this? We do it because of we have reverence for the Word of God that is inspired, it's inerrant, it's authoritative, it's infallible. It is God's Word to us, and so for that, we just kind of set a tone even with our physical bodies saying, hey, we have great reverence and respect for what it is that we're about to engage. So Mark 11:1 says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing that? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple... And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, it's a familiar story, and it's an event that we commemorate every year, the Sunday before Easter. And so there may be the temptation for us to just kind of disengage and to um, maybe not pay as close as attention as we might otherwise. God, may we not do that. You've got a lot to say to us this morning through this text. And so, God, I pray that you would clear away all the distractions or anything that might compete with us giving you our full and undivided attention. And so, God, we ask in this holy moment that you would speak to us and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, 
today's text covers the event that is commonly known as the triumphal entry, but I think it would be more appropriately called the not-so-triumphal entry. And I think you'll see why in just a few minutes. It, it breaks down into two main parts. We've got the preparation in verses 1 through 7, and then the procession in verses 8 through 11. The preparation and the procession. So let's take a look at the first of these, the preparation in verses 1 through 7. Verse 1 begins like this. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And so we got like this explosion of geographical locations that are all very important. So let's take a look at them on the map and see why they're significant. Our journey actually begins in Jericho. If you remember before Advent, way back in chapter 10, do you remember what happened at Jericho? A blind man named Bartimaeus was healed. And now Jesus, his disciples, Bartimaeus, and in an enthusiastic entourage are headed from Jericho to Jerusalem, which is signified here by the red box. Now, Jericho to Jerusalem was no easy journey because of the elevation. Jericho is actually the lowest city in the world. Did you know that? Its uh, elevation is 846 feet below sea level. And then Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above sea level. And so that journey from Jericho to Jerusalem involves an elevation gain of about 3,300 feet through hot and arid desert, which might cause us to ask, well, why was Jesus and this group of travelers making this trip? Well, for the very specific purpose of celebrating the Passover. You remember that Passover is the celebration which commemorates the Hebrews being delivered from slavery in Egypt. And you can read about it back in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, chapter 12. It talks about this event, which was called Passover. When the angel of death literally passed over the houses whose doorposts had been marked by blood, sparing them the plague of the death of the firstborn. And here's a very important statement recognizing that salvation came to those who were covered by the blood. Let me say that again. Salvation came to those who were covered by the blood. Does that ring a bell? Does that at all sound relevant to us? Does that remind you of the work of Jesus on our behalf, whose blood covers those who put their trust in Him? Well, here's where some of these dots are connected and things come together. The Passover celebration included the sacrifice of Passover lambs. And these sacrifices were to take place on the very next Friday, which, as we know, was the day upon which Jesus was crucified. Coincidence? Not at all. All part of God's perfect plan, God's perfect timing. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5-7, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Gives me goosebumps to see how God works this all together. Well, on the way to Jerusalem, there were some other key locations worthy of our attention today. First is the Mount of Olives which is in the green box. How many of you have ever been to the Mount of Olives? Raise your hand. Okay, quite a few of you. Um, if I ever have the blessing of being to the promised land, I want to go to the Mount of Olives because the more I understand the significance of it, 
Uh, the more I just want to stand there and be there. It's a ridge that runs along the east side of Jerusalem. This next slide here is a modern-day view of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. It's a beautiful view that some of you have been able to experience. Many, many, many important events have happened and will happen on the Mount of Olives. For example, King David fled there and wept when he was betrayed by his son Absalom. Also, in one of Ezekiel's visions, the glory of God departed from the temple in Jerusalem and came to rest on the Mount of Olives. The Garden of Gethsemane is located on the western slope of the Mount of Olives. Jesus ascended to heaven from the Mount of Olives. And guess what? According to Zechariah 14.4, Jesus will return from heaven to where? The Mount of of olives. So you get the idea that this is a place of great importance. Next location mentioned in our text is Bethany, uh, signified by the orange box, located on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, just two miles southeast of Jerusalem. Bethany was significant because it was the home of Jesus's friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And it would be the place of lodging for Jesus during this Passion Week. So Jesus would go into Jerusalem, he would do stuff, and then he would retreat to Bethany with his friends and spend the night and have lodging. And then the final key location in our text is Bethpage, marked by the blue box. It's a, a small and insignificant town located between Bethany and Jerusalem, but in today's text, it will provide a very significant service, a very significant resource to Jesus. And so we see this back in verse 1 again where it says, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. So that, that village in front of you is likely Bethphage. And Jesus commands two of his disciples to go there and find a colt for him, but not just any colt. There are some qualifiers. This is a certain colt, and here's what we know about it. What we know about the colt, first, it was a young donkey. It was a young donkey, and not a horse, which is what I typically think of when I hear the word colt. How do we know that it was a donkey and not a horse? Well, because in Matthew's account of these events, he gives a bit more detail than Mark does, and he identifies it as such, as a young donkey. Next, we know that the colt had never been ridden. No one had ever sat on it, even. Now, we might ask, well, why is Jesus being so picky? Wouldn't just any donkey do? Why? That just didn't sound right, did it? Um, not at all. Because you see, the Mosaic law required that an animal devoted to a sacred purpose, and this was certainly a sacred purpose, Jesus entering Jerusalem for his final week, entering Jerusalem for the purpose of crucifixion and resurrection, such a sacred purpose, an animal could not be used that had been used previously for an ordinary purpose. And so in short, it would take a special donkey to fulfill a special purpose, a young donkey that had never been ridden. Uh, the third thing we know about the colt is it belonged to someone else. 
It belonged to someone else. In essence, Jesus tells two of his disciples, hey, go to Bethpage and commandeer someone's donkey. Take it. Now, we might say, is that okay? Well, if you're Jesus, it is. Why? Well, because after all, whose donkey is it at the end of the day? It's Jesus' donkey because he created it. He owns it. He owns everything. He can take it if he wants to and do what he wants to do with it. However, the wording in verse 3 is interesting, and it even maybe provides a a theological conundrum for us. Verse 3 says, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And there's that, that phrase, the Lord has need of it. Does that sound right to you? Does God need anything? Well, in a sense, he does but not because he's needy, all right? So let me qualify that. In a sense, he does need, but not because he's needy, but because he has voluntarily chosen to do his work through earthly resources. God could wave his hand and do whatever he wants to do. He has no need whatsoever in terms of who he is and his character, his very essence. However, he has chosen for reasons known to him to work through earthly resources like you and me and even donkeys, which when you think about it, we might have a lot in common, right? But I do have to ask, why a donkey? Of all the ways Jesus could have entered Jerusalem, why did he insist on this one? What wouldn't have been much more impressive for Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, to enter Jerusalem on the back of a mighty steed with great pomp and circumstance? Because the, the, the conquering Roman generals of the day, they knew how to do that. They would go into a city in such a way. You see, they had a a special celebration known as the Roman Triumphus. It was an elaborate parade in which the victorious general coming off the battlefield would come riding in on a golden chariot pulled by magnificent horses. It was the ultimate demonstration of power and of pride. But Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was nothing like the Roman triumphus, which is why I call it the not-so-triumphal entry. Instead of a golden chariot, what's he got? A donkey. Quite a contrast. So back to the question, why a donkey? Well, first, the donkey fulfilled prophecy. The donkey fulfilled prophecy, specifically Zechariah 9.9 foretold that this would be the manner in which Jesus, the Messiah, would enter Jerusalem. About 500 years before this event, before Jesus rode the donkey, Zechariah wrote, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. How is he coming? Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the donkey was an important component for Jesus fulfilling Messianic prophecy, proving that he is in fact the Christ. The second reason that the donkey was significant was that the donkey demonstrated humility. The donkey demonstrated humility. We we just read in Zechariah that Jesus would come humble and mounted on a donkey, not like that Roman general with pride and power. Where are my NMC people? 
um, Northern Michigan Christian School. Um, there's so few of you out there. Do you remember back in the day when you all used to raise money with donkey basketball? Now, I don't know if PETA got involved or what. They don't think they do that anymore. But I remember taking my, my little son, Josh, this probably was 20 so years ago, to, to donkey basketball at NMC. And um, I think part of the, uh, 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 the attraction of donkey basketball is donkeys aren't particularly cooperative. And so you put a bunch of faculty and staff on donkeys, ex- try to get them to play basketball, and everybody laughs for an hour or so, except maybe the donkeys. Um, but it's truly humbling. It's truly humbling. And so when I think of this story, I think of donkey basketball, and I think of stubborn donkeys, especially one that had never been ridden. How do you think that went? Not at all like the Roman triumphus. Not at all like the conquering Roman general coming in power and pride and majesty. This is something much, much different. Lastly, the donkey is significant because the donkey communicated peace. The donkey communicated peace. It was, it was customary at that time that when a general would come to a community in peace, he would come on a donkey. But if he came to make war, he came on a great horse. And so as Jesus came on a donkey, he declared to all in his presence that he came in peace, bringing with him peace with God and the peace of God to all who would receive him as Lord and Savior. And so that is why Jesus insisted on a donkey, this special donkey. We then read in verse 4, and they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Now, what what is significant here is that everything happens exactly the way Jesus said it would. You see that? Exactly the way Jesus said it would. And this is very important because here Jesus is demonstrating both his omniscience, and omniscience means what? He's all-knowing. He knows what's going to happen before it happens. And that's impressive Okay, but there's more than just omniscience at work here. There is sovereignty at work here. Not only does Jesus know what's going to happen before it happens, he is in control of everything that happens because he's God. He is sovereign. He has control. And you would expect this, again, of the true Messiah who is God's own son. And so, That is the first main section in our text. That's the preparation in verses 1 through 7. Lots of details about the fulfillment of prophecy and the authentication of Jesus as the Christ. The second main section, again, is the procession in verses 8 through 11, where Jesus makes his not-so-triumphal entry into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. Look with me at verse 8. It says, "...and many spread their cloaks on the road." And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the field. So let's first of all take a moment to talk about these actions by the crowd, what they did, Um, the spreading of their cloaks on the road and also the spreading of leafy branches, because each of them tell us something of the expectations of this crowd. First of all, um, the spreading of the cloaks on the road. Now, 
It might not seem like a big deal to us who have closets and closets full of clothes, right? So many clothes that we get to this time of year and we got to go make a run to Goodwill or Salvation Army to drop off stuff because we have too many clothes. But that's not the way it was back then, right? All right? They, they, they treasured, valued their cloaks. And so why would people, many of whom are poor, take a perfectly good cloak, which would function in several different ways. It was your warmth. It was even your bed. Why would they take this perfectly good cloak and throw it down on a dusty manure-covered road for a donkey to trample? Well, it was to create a sort of red carpet, a red carpet fit for a king. And the sacrificial act also communicated visually the will of the people in surrendering themselves to the approaching king. Literally, they're saying, we throw ourselves before you to even ride over us. We are your subjects. So that was the spreading of the cloaks on the road. Next was the act of the palm branches, right? And we get some significant insight into the significance of the palm branches from the story of a man named Judas Maccabeus. You see, approximately 200 years before this not-so-triumphal entry, that would place us between the time of the Old Testament and the New Testament, what we call the intertestamental period, the Jews were in bondage to the Syrians, and a ruthless leader named Antiochus Epiphanes. But there arose a deliverer named Judas Maccabeus. And guess what his nickname was? The Hammer, which I love. It sounds like a superhero or something, right? Like a, a Marvel character, the Hammer. He overthrew the Syrians. He restored the temple that the Syrians had previously desecrated. He delivered the Jews from this oppression. And guess how the Jews celebrated? Palm branches. Palm branches. And ever since, the palm branch became the, the symbol of Jewish victory over, over oppression and throwing off their oppressors. So when they waved palm branches in honor of Jesus, it could only mean one thing. Here comes the next deliverer. They expected Jesus to be the hammer the next Judas Maccabeus. But as we know, their expectations were wrong. For Jesus came to do so much more than to just set Jews free by overthrowing the Syrians or the Romans. He came to set the whole world free by overthrowing sin. And not only did the crowds communicate their expectations of Jesus with their actions, they also did it with their words. Look at verse 9. It says, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, the declaration of Hosanna, we talk about this on Palm Sunday. It is a one-word prayer. Our prayers don't need to be long. It's a one-word prayer, which means save now. Save now. It was a cry for help. It was a plea for deliverance. But again, the deliverance desired by the crowds was to be set free from the Romans. They wanted Jesus to be a political Messiah, not a spiritual one. The crowds also proclaimed, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this is significant because this comes directly from Psalm 118. 
verses 25 through 26, where it says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now, this was, Psalm 118, a psalm of deliverance written to commemorate one or possibly both things. Uh, Number one, the Hebrews' escape from slavery in Egypt and or their return from exile. Either way, the usage of this psalm by the crowds at the not-so-triumphal entry gives us some insight into the mindset of the crowd. They were anticipating a deliverance like that of the exodus or the return from exile. That's what they were geared up for. That's what they desired, and that's how they viewed what Jesus was coming to do. Well, the passage ends in quite peculiar fashion in verse 11. It says, And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Very anticlimactic. It's like all this buildup, all the preparation, the procession, the crowds, their cloaks, their palm branches, the cries for deliverance, and it ends this way. With Jesus looking around and going home to Bethany. Well, it is, in fact, setting up for us what is to come next. And back in the 80s, when you had a TV series and they'd have To Be Continued, that's kind of what we have for us today, To Be Continued. And so we'll do just that next week with verse 12. So that is the exposition of the not-so-triumphal entry, the beginning of the end. Let's shift now to application and how should we then live. I've got three application points for you this morning. First of all, Trust Jesus with your future. Trust Jesus with your future. You know, again, one of the key elements of the story is how Jesus not only had foreknowledge, but he had sovereignty. He not only knew what was going to happen, he was in control of what was going to happen. The timing, again, there's no accident that Jesus comes to Jerusalem at this time. There's no accident or coincidence that he is going to be crucified on what we now call Good Friday, on the Passover. This is all orchestrated by God. Jesus is not some hapless victim where things happen to him. This is all orchestrated by God. They're all in the hands of Jesus. Everything happens just as he said. And I believe we can find great, great comfort in this. For in the same way, the details of your life are in the hands of Jesus. In the same way, the details of your life are in the hands of Jesus. Nothing happens by chance. Nothing happens by coincidence. Therefore, there is purpose in whatever comes my way. And how I appreciate that, because you know what that means? Even suffering is not without purpose. It's not just some accident coincidence. Everything happens for a purpose God is at work. He is for me. He is not against me. He works out all things for his glory and my good. And so that gives me great hope and confidence that Jesus has my future in his hands and I can trust him no matter what. Now, is that easy? It is not. But it is true. 
Does that mean that our lives will be void of suffering? Absolutely not. Jesus told us otherwise. In this world, you will have trouble. The apostles, as we know about their lives, demonstrate for us it is not easy to follow Jesus. But at the end of the day, and as we look at the book of Revelation and we see further evidence that God is in control of all things, we know that our lives are in his hands and nothing is without meaning or purpose. God uses it all, especially the hard stuff. So application point number one, trust Jesus with your future. Next, number two, trust Jesus with your stuff. Trust Jesus with your stuff. Remember when Jesus sent those disciples to commandeer someone's donkey? And we were reminded that it's okay, because it belongs to God anyway. And that we are but stewards of God's resources. Realize that? I mean, even, even you're, because you, you could kind of get puffed up and say, hey, I work hard for my stuff. Yes, you do. Who gave you the ability to work? Who gave you the health and the ingenuity and the intelligence and the physical ability to work? It's all a gift from God. It all belongs to Him. And so it raises the question, is there anything in your life about which it might be said the Lord has need of it? Is there anything in your life about which it might be said the Lord has need of it? If Jesus is truly Lord of your life, we, we throw around that term a lot. Oh, He is Lord. Do you realize what you're saying? If He is Lord, that means we are His subjects. We belong to Him, and everything that we have belongs to Him. Therefore, there's nothing off limits to Him. He has every right to appropriate any and all of our resources for His kingdom purposes. That includes our time, our talents, our treasures, but it takes a great deal of trust to hold loosely to these things, doesn't it? It's very countercultural, where we're told to, 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 to gather and to hold tight and to get all you can, especially when we live in times when it seems very uncertain. We, we, we need to hold on to our stuff, because who knows what's going to happen? Well, it goes back to point number one, doesn't it, about trusting God with our future. And so I reiterate the question, is there anything in your life about which it might be said, the Lord has need of it? And are you willing to release it? If he is truly Lord, then you will. Lastly, trust Jesus with your soul. Trust Jesus with your soul. Um, again, what did it mean that Jesus entered Jerusalem not on a horse but on a donkey? It meant that he came in peace signifying that we are living in a very special time in salvation history, are we not? A time of peace in salvation history where God appeals to each and every one of us to receive peace with God and the peace of God, a peace that is only possible by turning from our sin and turning to Jesus alone as Savior and Lord, where we hand over our lives to Him. But please listen carefully. This time of peace, this unique chapter in salvation history will not last. It will come to an end. Jesus will return again. 
But next time it will not be in peace on a donkey. It will be on a great white horse making war. And it will all come down to the question, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Revelation 19.11 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flaming fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arraigned in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That sounds more like a triumphal entry, doesn't it? Therefore it says in Isaiah 55, 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. I believe that speaks to this wonderful chapter of salvation history that we find ourselves in where Jesus has entered on a donkey. He comes in peace. In which case today is a perfect day for someone, maybe several someones, to cry out, Hosanna, save now. Deliver me not from the Romans, but from sin, death, and hell. Deliver me from spiritual bondage. Deliver me from a wasted life. Deliver me from judgment. In this way, will you trust Jesus with your soul? Will you bow your heads with me? Father, how thankful we are for this season in which we live, this season of peace, this season of invitation, this season in which, um, because of your great love for us as sinners, you sent your son Jesus to die for us, that we might be saved, that we might know eternal life. And so, God, I pray for anyone who is listening today who has yet to cross that line of faith. And God, may your Holy Spirit speak and nudge and move and convict and lead someone even today to salvation in you. God, for those of us who have maybe walked with you for many years, perhaps we need to be challenged afresh and anew about our trust in you regarding our future or our trust in you regarding our stuff. Perhaps we've become stingy. Perhaps we've become uh, afraid of the future and we, we've um, decided that we're going to hold tightly to stuff. God, would you release our grip? Rather than holding tightly to stuff, may we hold tightly to you. And God, may we reflect your character of grace and generosity. May we not be consumed with the things of this world, but the things of your world. So God, we ask that you administer to us in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.